Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A general overview of the Islamic religion as taught in schools and otherwise often divide the religion into two major uh, branches, the Sunni and the Shia. And while this is, of course, a very simplified view, there's in fact a lot of other groups and schools of thought and sub-branches within these two major branches, um, it does point to two very um, sometimes distinct and significant communities of Muslims. Both the Sunni and the Shia are in themselves divided into various sub-branches and schools of thought, but when many, perhaps most people, talk about Shia Islam or the Shi'is, they are usually referring to uh, the most major branch of Shia Islam, the kind of Shi'ism associated with Iran and the government there, the Ayatollahs and uh, places of learning like Qum. Now, this branch of Shi'ism is usually referred to as the Ithna Ashari, or the Twelver Shi'is, also sometimes known as the Imami Shia. And in this episode, we'll be giving you a general overview of the history and intellectual development of this very significant Islamic community. The Twelver, or Imami Shia, is a very significant community within Islam today. About 15-20% to 20% of Muslims in the world are Shi'is and almost 85% of those Shi'ites belong to the Twelver branch in particular. It holds political power in Iran and thus also serves as an important player in world politics. But where do the Twelvers come from? The even more general division of Islam into Sunni and Shia has at its core a debate over authority. They all believe in the prophecy of Muhammad and the revelation of the Qur'an, but after the Prophet died, who was supposed to succeed him, and in what way? The group that would later come to be known as Sunni 
believed that political authority was passed on to chosen members of Muhammad's community, the Khulafa or caliphs, and eventually accepted as righteous the first four, Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman, and Ali. Later caliphates, like the Umayyads and Abbasids, were often considered legitimate leaders as representatives of the Prophet and God, but are not revered in the same way as the first four. In terms of religious or spiritual authority, the Sunnis would later come to recognize the community of scholars, the ulama, as the source of authority on law and belief, as well as the Sufi sheikhs and saints. The Shia had a different view. Instead, they held that authority to lead the community was passed down in the Prophet's family. Partly in a more general sense of being part of the Hashimi clan, but later becoming narrowed down specifically to the Alid family line, the progeny of Muhammad's daughter Fatima and Ali, his cousin. Indeed, the name Shia originally comes from the term Shi'at Ali, or the party of Ali. It is believed by Shi'is that Ali was the true successor to Muhammad, a role he had been given officially at the event of Ghadir Khum. Ali thus became the first so-called Imam of the Shi'is and plays an enormous role in their theology and doctrines. The title of Imam, or rightful leader, was then passed down from Ali to his son Hassan, then to his brother Hussein, and then continued in a line of patrilineal succession. In the earliest period, there were many debates around rightful authority in the Muslim community. We can in no way talk about a simple Shia-Sunni divide at this time, these communities as fixed identities wouldn't be formulated until many centuries later. Instead, there were many different claimants to authority, both politically and religiously, some of whom legitimized their rule simply on power or other factors, while others, the Alids, did so based on their direct familial connection to the Prophet. Early Shi'ism is a difficult topic with many competing accounts, but it seems that it was in many ways a kind of messianic movement. Many imams, sons of Ali and their sons and their sons, etc., who claimed authority and gained followers. But according to later established Shia doctrine, there is a certain line of imams that is considered quote-unquote correct or authoritative. Any later division of Shi'ism into further branches is determined by which line of imams a certain community sees as true or legitimate. In Shi'ism, there has to always be an imam in the world, a person who has been given the knowledge or ilm to interpret the Qur'an and the sunnah of the Prophet in the correct way and adapt it to new situations and times. He, the imam, is given this knowledge by the previous imam, who is his father, who received it from the imam before him, and so on. This designation of the new imam, the continuing of the line of imams, is called nas and is central to Shia belief. The Ahl al-Bayt, or family of the Prophet Muhammad, has been given the role to lead his community through their intimate and direct knowledge of the essence of the Quranic message. It's not that the Quran is incomplete, per se, as I alluded to in a previous episode, but the Qur'an requires there to be an imam who has the Gnostic or true knowledge of its meaning so that he can interpret it correctly for the Muslims. The Shi'is criticized their proto-Sunni counterparts for relying too much on their own minds in interpreting and understanding religion, leading to division and confusion regarding beliefs and practices. Instead, there is always an imam, a possessor of full knowledge, who has the authority to interpret the religion and to adapt it to new times and circumstances. And according to the major schools of Shi'ism, there is always only one imam at any given time. So the religious and spiritual essence of Shia Islam 
always revolve around a single pole, a single point that determines all points and aspects, the Imam. And this is true for all prophetic cycles. Earlier prophets like Moses or Jesus also had Imams that succeeded them. There simply cannot be any religion without an Imam to lead people in this religion. Thus, this doctrine of the Imamates is at the core of all Shia belief and spirituality. It is the main point that distinguishes them from the Sunnis, even though they have developed many other unique features too. And again, the main difference between different branches of Shiism is that they accept different lines of Imams to be correct. The two largest branches, the Twelver or Ithna Ashari or Imamis, and the second largest, the Ismailis, all agree on the first six Imams. Ali, the son-in-law and cousin of the Prophet, is the first Imam. He was followed by his son Hassan. The imamate was then inherited by his brother, Ali's other son, Hussein. After Hussein was martyred in the Battle of Karbala in 680, an event that would become central to Shia consciousness and belief, his son Ali Zain al-Abidin became the next imam, followed by his son Muhammad al-Baqir, and finally the last imam that they all accept as canonical is Jafar al-Sadiq. Jafar al-Sadiq is one of the most central of the Imams, as he is often thought of as having originated or at least formulated many of the core Shia beliefs for the first time. He is said to have held an enormous amount of knowledge of all things religion, as well as things relating to esotericism and the occult. Indeed, according to many later writers, all esoteric teachings within Islam, something that is especially prominent in different Shi'i branches, originate with the Imams, and Jafar al-Sadiq is one of the most prominent in this regard. He is, for example, thought to have been the teacher of the famous alchemist Jabir ibn Hayyan. Even the Sunnis like him and consider Jafar to have been a teacher of law to people like Abu Hanifa and Malik ibn Anas, two of the most foundational figures of Sunni Islamic jurisprudence. Although the Sunnis will often hold that Jafar wasn't a Shia Imam as such, but a Sunni scholar, but, you know, still. In any case, there was a great split in the community after the death of Jafar al-Sadiq. Some believed that his eldest son, Ismail, was the rightful successor, and these became known as the Ismailis. Another group instead followed his youngest son, Musa al-Kazim, and this is the group that we know as the Twelvers. This name is connected to the number of Imams. Now remember, Jafar al-Sadiq was the sixth Imam, so Musa al-Kazim is the seventh, he was followed by Ali al-Ridda, then Muhammad Jawad al-Taqi, then Ali al-Hadi, followed by Hassan al-Askari, and lastly Muhammad al-Mahdi, who was the last and twelfth Imam. The last Imam was only a young boy when he was given the title after his father had passed, and tradition holds that he immediately went into a lesser occultation, or he went into hiding, and only communicated with his community through a few advisors. This continued for a number of years until 941, when he is thought to have gone into the major occultation, Al-Ghaiba Al-Kubra. This meant that he could no longer be contacted and would not be seen by anyone until the end of time. He thus became Al-Mahdi, a kind of messianic figure, and it is thought that this twelfth Imam will return at the end of time, just before Judgment Day, to set the world right again and reinstate true religion and devotion. This became a major turning point in Twelver Shiism, as we will see, and began a phase in their history that remains to this day.
As we saw earlier, according to Shi'i belief, there can be no time when there is no Imam present to lead the community. And so according to the Shi'is, Al-Mahdi isn't dead, he is still out there somewhere in hiding and will return when the appropriate time has come. And while he is gone, he is uh, temporarily represented by the scholars of the community. This is where they get the name Ithna Ashari, which means 12 or 12erism, right? Because they believe that there were 12 Imams that succeeded Muhammad and that the 12th Imam is the last one who has gone into hiding and will return uh, in time for Judgment Day. So this was the earliest period and you could say the first phase of 12er Shiism, the phase or time when the Imams were still present to lead the community. Now remember, this was before there was anything like a clear distinction between Sunni and Shia, but the Shi'is had definitely formed a unique community um, based around these worldly and spiritual leaders of the Imam and thus distinguished themselves from uh, many other Muslims at the time. But what is Shi'ism like other than these basic facts? What are the beliefs and practices that made them stand out? Well, you could say that there was a clear shift or clear distinction uh, between the first period, the period of the Imams, and the period after the occultation of the last or twelfth Imam. The earliest period of Shi'i history is quite obscure and there is a lot of debate in scholarship regarding the nature of its doctrines. Some view the early period as one of strict legalism which later became influenced by esoteric currents while many today emphasize that the esoteric aspects and many features of the imamate were in place basically from the beginning. What seems clear to most is that in terms of jurisprudence or law, as well as to some degree theology, the early Shiites differed in some significant ways from their proto-Sunni counterparts. While there are examples of companions of the Imams that engaged in theological speculation and debate, the Imams and their followers appear to have had a rather strict attitude towards matters of law and doctrine. Whereas many of the proto-Sunni schools, especially in the earliest period, allowed for different forms of independent interpretation and rational deduction in deriving law, what is often called ra'i, meaning opinion, and things like analogy, qiyas, the Shiites were very much against these kinds of practices. There was no room for independent reasoning and interpretation on part of the jurists in the early period, and similar attitudes appear to have been held in terms of theological speculation too. This is true of both the Twelver Shiites as well as the Ismailis at the time. Scripture and revelation was the only source of doctrine. This makes complete sense, really. Remember, to the Shiites, the Imam was the absolute authority on all things religion. He had the true inner knowledge of the Quran and the Sunnah and could interpret and reinterpret them in the correct way. So why would you ever start reasoning and interpreting things for yourself when you could just go ask the living imam for the answer which would always be the true and correct interpretation? So it is partly as a result of the presence of the living imam as a person who carries the Quranic message and its complete interpretation that we get this restrictive attitude. The Imam has complete authority and has all the answers, whereas in the proto-Sunni world, there was no absolute leader but up to the community of scholars to figure out the answers as best they could. But once the twelfth Imam went into occultation and was no longer reachable by the community, 
what happens then? What do the Shiites do when they don't have that central authority, at least not present in the world, to ask questions and to get the right interpretation at all times? Well, this is the reason, probably at least one of the major reasons, why we see a very clear shift in emphasis and methodology when it comes to law and also to some degree theology right after the time of the occultation. It is in this period that we get some of the most formative scholars in Shia history. Figures like Sheikh Mufid and his students like Sharif al-Murtada and Sheikh Tusi would establish some of the key features of Twelver Shiism as we know it today and instigate a major shift in its intellectual trajectory. Sheikh Mufid put a major emphasis on reason as an important part in understanding and interpreting religious practice and belief, whereas earlier the trend had been a much more strict following of the scripture and the teachings of the imam. But because the imam was in occultation, this was a new era in which jurists had to figure things out without the imam, and for that, reason and intellect, aql, was central. It is Sheikh Mufid who started the process of bringing together Shiism with the heavily rationalistic school of Kalam theology known as the Mu'tazila, albeit a bit modified to fit the Shia tradition, an influence that is still central to Shia theology today. Sheikh Tuzi, one of Mufid's students, is sometimes also considered the founder of Shia jurisprudence properly and compiled two of the four major Shia collections of Hadith. In other words, with these thinkers in the immediate aftermath of the Great Occultation, we see a major shift in Shia methodology and intellectual thought. From a quite literalist and strict confined tendency in the period of the Imams to a post-Imam period that was characterized primarily by the huge emphasis on aql, on reason and intellect, as well as personal interpretation, ijtihad, as the major components of Shi'i thought, a characteristic that still is central to that tradition today. Now it should be kept in mind that some scholars disagree with this version of events. Writers like Hussein Modaresi instead emphasize that the companions of the imams themselves did engage in reasoning and interpretations in terms of law and doctrine, and that it was only in the 9th to 10th century that the more traditionist tendency took over. Like I said, the early history is often disputed and it's important to keep different perspectives in mind. In any case, a huge emphasis on reason from the 11th century onwards is often placed in contrast to the different schools of Sunni jurisprudence, which at around this time is often said to have done away with ijtihad or interpretation and instead entered a period of taqlid, imitation and following of already established legal precedents. Of course, these are huge generalizations, and to say that these Sunnis abandoned ijtihad or interpretation is simply incorrect. They would continue, of course, to reinterpret things just like the Shi'is did. Uh, but there is a certain difference in emphasis in that in the four major schools of Sunni law, uh, most topics had been covered previously, and there was a tendency in these schools to imitate or to look at the previously established uh, legal rulings from their particular school and simply follow those traditions rather than going back to the original sources and reinterpreting things for themselves, right? And in Shiism, um, again, while this is a huge generalization, in Shiism from this period and until today, there's been a much bigger emphasis on this process of ijtihad, of, of reinterpreting or going back to the sources, the hadith of the prophet, of the imams and the Quran, 
and using the aql or the reason and intellect of well of the jurist himself to uh, interpret uh, law and also theology to some degree for themselves the relationship between the Shi'is and what would later become known as the Sunnis is a complicated topic. In some regards, they aren't that different from each other at all and can seem indistinguishable from each other. And in other respects, they can be very distinct and different. In a general sense, the Twelver Shia follow the same basic practices as their Sunni counterparts. They pray five times a day, they fast during Ramadan, they give to charity and so on. The Qur'an is considered the word of God as the primary source in all matters, as is the sunnah of the Prophet. The major difference here is the role of the imams, who not only have a sunnah of their own, but also have the absolute authority to interpret the sunnah of the Prophet himself, as well as the sunnah of earlier imams and the Qur'an. In this way, the Twelver Shia, as we saw earlier, also have collections of hadith that they use as basis for law and theology. But they have different collections of hadiths from the Sunnis. The Sunnis have their Sahih Bukhari and Sahih Muslim, etc. But the Shiites have different ideas about which of the companions of the Prophet are more or less trustworthy and so have other chains of transmission when it comes to hadith. The Shia also have hadiths about the Imams and their lives and teachings aside from hadiths about the Prophet Muhammad, and these Imam hadiths are also authoritative in the same way. The four main books of hadith in Shi'ism are the Kitab al-Kafi'ih, Man la yadduruhu al-Faqih, Tahzib al-Ahkam, and al-Istibsar, the later two of which are by the aforementioned Sheikh Tuzi. There are also practices that characterize Shi'ism in important ways. One of the most significant of these is the annual holiday known as Ashura, the commemoration of the martyrdom of Imam Hussein. In 680, the third Shia Imam and grandson of the Prophet Muhammad, Hussein ibn Ali, fought a battle against the forces of the Umayyad Caliph Yazid in Karbala, Iraq. Both he and most of his family were martyred in this encounter, and this event is one of the central features of Shia history and consciousness. It often comes to represent the Shi'is' role as a minority that faces oppression of tyrannical rulers. And this event is commemorated each year in what is known as Ashura, where there are various rituals performed. One will often beat one's own chest in a kind of solidarity with Imam Hussein's suffering and go on pilgrimage to his shrine in Karbala, which is a massive complex in Iraq today. And this visiting of shrines in general, known as Ziyara, is also an important component of Shiism. One will visit the graves of the Imams as an important religious practice. The pilgrimage to Karbala and Imam Hussein is by far the largest and most significant and can sometimes even equal the Hajj to Mecca in importance. From this, the Shi'is have developed in various ways that have differed from the proto-Sunnis and later Sunnis. The adoption of Mu'tazilite theology means that they viewed God as a unified essence without various attributes as part of that essence, but instead as identical to that essence. This is a theological jargon, but this was quite an important um, topic and debate in theological circles at this time. They have also often emphasized a certain level of esotericism, and various doctrines about the imams and other things are often initiatory and secretive in nature. Indeed, one of the key features of Shi'i thinking in general is the division of reality and most things in it into two categories, the exoteric, the zahir, and the esoteric, batin. 
reality itself has an outer visible aspect as well as an inner invisible aspect. And in terms of religion and doctrine, the same is true. The Qur'an has a zahir and a batin, an apparent meaning and a hidden esoteric meaning that can be extracted through esoteric interpretation, known as ta'wil. Indeed, the sixth Imam Jafar al-Sadiq is believed to have said, quote, The Book of God comprises four things, the statements set down, the implied purport, the hidden meanings relating to the supersensible world, and the exalted spiritual doctrines. Throughout Shi'i history, we see an emphasis on this division of the zahir and batin of things. As another example, there is the idea of the esoteric and exoteric imam. The exoteric imam is the actual person of the imam who guides the community in the world, while the esoteric imam is the aql within every human being, although not necessarily aql as understood in later imamism as the intellect or reason as such, but rather an earlier conception of the word meaning a faculty of consciousness that is able to recognize God and the truth, a kind of inner divine guide that complements the outer divine guide of the human imam. This esotericism of Shi'ism is really prominent throughout its history, and at least according to many scholars today, like Muhammad Ali Amir Mu'azi, can be found in the earliest teachings of the Imams themselves and their followers. Reading the earliest sources, we get fascinating statements from and about the Imams regarding their cosmological role. The Prophet Muhammad always has the highest and most exalted role as a prophet, a title that none of the Imams are ever given. But they are nonetheless called the Hujat Allah, the proof of God, and as the Ausiyah, the guardians or custodians of Muhammad's revelation. Thus, Shi'ism has always been esoteric in the sense that it is somewhat initiatory. It is only the followers of the Imams, those who have been given the true esoteric interpretations and understanding of the Islamic religion, that constitute true believers and practice true Islam. Everyone else is the people of Zahir, the people who only follow the outer meanings and practices of the religion and fail to see its true spiritual meanings, which can only be taught by the Imams. This is true of early Shi'i practices as well. According to some sources, there appear to have been what we could call spiritual or mystical practices in early Shi'ism, primarily concerned with, quote, vision with the heart, al-ru'ya bil-qalb. This was probably a practice and theory taught to initiates that included prayers and other teachings so that one could see God or experience God in some way through the heart. The Shi'is have always had a very transcendent view of God, like most Muslims. God is of course utterly beyond any description or understanding by humans as such. He can never be seen with the eyes, but he can in some way be seen with the eye of the heart. And these early mystical practices of Shi'ism appear to have focused on this. Practitioners could experience the light of the Imam through this vision of the heart as well as other divine experiences. Given how early these sources are, this is very significant. In later Sufism, or Tasawwuf, the idea of the heart as the human faculty able to experience God in some way would become a central theme. This has led some scholars to connect these, and figures like Henri Corban have argued that all mysticism and esotericism in Islam originally comes out of early Shi'ism and the teachings of the Imams. Other scholars will disagree with this, and I would definitely argue that this is an oversimplification, but it is very fascinating nonetheless. The Imams in themselves are also attributed with various miraculous and superhuman powers. 
Not only are they considered to be infallible according to majority Shi'i opinion, but many stories also tell of how they had access to occult and esoteric powers, both through their inner knowledge of the secrets of the Quran and of reality, but also through employing things like astrology and even originating the science of letters or ilm al-huruf, which became so popular in later Islamic mysticism. One of the sources of these esoteric powers is thought to be their knowledge of the most supreme name of God, which was only taught to the Prophet Muhammad and to the Imams, and which is composed of 73 letters. One of these letters is only known to God, but various prophets and figures in history have known a few of the letters, and this has been the source of their magical powers. Jesus, for example, could perform all his miracles just by knowing two of the letters. And the same goes for the Imams, who, together with the Prophet Muhammad, knew 72 of these letters and thus were capable of amazing feats. So the Imams, again, is central to Shi'i belief, doctrine, Shi'i practice. It is a central pole around which all of Shi'ism revolves, essentially, whether it's Tweller Shi'ism or the Ismailis or all branches of Shi'ism is centered around this figure of the imam, whether he is a living imam in the world or an imam in occultation. In both cases, he remains the central pole of the entire religion, or, or yeah, the entire religion according to Shi'is. And the absence of the imam, the imam who is in occultation, is a significant factor for practices in Twelver Shi'ism as well, as we saw earlier. As another example of this, it is believed that only the imam can lead the community in jihad in the form of armed struggle or war. But when there is no imam, there can be no such war. This means that the Twelver Shi'is don't perform any form of offensive military jihad, but only that of the defensive kind, protecting the borders already established. Now, Some scholars, especially in the Safavid Empire, for example, you know, there could be loopholes to this doctrine. When you're ruling an empire, you need to be able to do offensive war in some way, usually at least. So there are nuances to this, but in general, this could be said to be true. Even today, and many 12er Shi'i scholars today still hold to this general opinion that no offensive jihad or war can ever be performed while the imam is absent. Despite this, though, the Twelvers have gained political power on occasion, even before the revolution in Iran in 1979. The Buyids, who ruled the central lands of the Islamic world in the 10th and 11th century, adopted Twelver Shi'ism. This was at the same time that the Fatimids ruled further west in Egypt, who were themselves Ismaili Shiites. So this was a time when Shiism, albeit different branches of Shiism, ruled significant portions of the Islamic world, a situation that played a major role in the formation of what we know as Sunni Islam today, as a kind of response to this precarious situation. Another significant example is indeed the later establishment of the Safavid dynasty in Persia, and thus we have reached that meeting point of our discussion today. By then, Shi'ism had continued to develop intellectually from the days of people like Sheikh Mufid, and we see a basically fully developed system of jurisprudence, as well as other flourishing intellectual, philosophical, and mystical tendencies. In terms of jurisprudence or Islamic law, the Safavid era saw some significant changes and developments. The school of law followed by the Twelver Shi'is is called the Jafari school, named after that very significant sixth imam, Jafar al-Sadiq, and which has been developed by such significant figures as Sheikh Tuzi and his later followers. 
Under the influence of these scholars, Shi'ilah had again become heavily reliant on reason, aql, and ijtihad, interpretation by a qualified jurist known as the mujtahid. But under the Safavids, this rationalistic tendency was challenged by a resurgence of the traditionist school, who rejected independent reasoning in terms of law and instead focused on a much more strict literalism of only using the written sources of the Quran and the Hadith. From this movement, the Jafari school of law came to be divided into two schools or tendencies, the Usuli, which are the rationalists, and the Akhbaris, the traditionalists. And indeed, from the Usulis being basically undisputed, the Akhbaris grew so much in prominence during the Safavid era that they made up the majority of Shi'i scholars during most of the 18th century. However, since the 19th century, the Usulis once again gained the upper hand, and today the absolute majority of Shi'is follow the rationalistic Usuli school. So, why did this great shift suddenly happen during the Safavid Empire? Well, one thing could be that the Shiites were suddenly in political power of a major empire, which led to new questions having to be asked about the law in relation to that new position. Thus, new discussions took place and new schools emerged. In general, the Jafari school of Shi'i law isn't all that different from the schools of Sunni law at all. Uh, in most ways, in terms of law, they are basically identical, but they can differ in certain details. The Shi'is have a different position of the hands and arms when they pray, the daily salah prayers, for example, compared to the majority of Sunnis. Another major factor in Shi'i history and doctrine is the idea of taqiyah. So because the Shi'is have often been a minority in Sunni-ruled lands, they have faced oppression and persecution from uh, the majority community. Uh, and because of this, uh, there developed this idea of taqiyah, that it is permissible uh, in extreme situations for Shi'is to hide their identity, basically, to hide the fact that they are Shi'is and perhaps pretend to be Sunni Muslims to avoid persecution. So this has been a very important part of Shi'ism throughout history, uh, which is not as prominent at all in Sunni Islam. The Shi'is also generally differ from the Sunnis in allowing temporary marriage, mutah, and other such relatively minor details. And we also saw their differing attitude towards jihad or armed struggle before. So there are certain differences, but in general and in most ways, the Jafari school of Shi'i law is very similar to the Sunni schools of law. But even outside the realm of law and jurisprudence, the Shi'i intellectual traditions really flourished during the Safavid era. It is in this period that we see some of the most significant and influential intellectuals, philosophers, and scholars in history. We have, for example, the great school of Isfahan, in which philosophy flourished under great figures like Mir Damad and his even more famous and influential student Mullah Sadra. These figures created a kind of synthetic philosophy that combined the peripatetic works of Ibn Sina with more mystical or Sufi strands of thinking, such as Suhravardi and the great Ibn Arabi. This relationship between Shi'ism and mysticism slash Sufism is a complicated one, but one that is definitely interesting. As we saw earlier, there were definitely things that could be considered mystical from the earliest days of Shi'ism, to the point that some have even claimed that Islamic mysticism and esotericism originates in that movement. But in terms of mysticism in the form of Sufism, things get a little more difficult. 
Sufism, or tasawwuf in Arabic, is indeed for the most part a Sunni affair. Most Sufi orders and figures are and were Sunnis. Now there are exceptions to this, for example the Ni'matullahi order, which I have made an episode about previously, but in the general sense this can be considered to be true. But that doesn't mean that Sufism didn't influence Shi'i thought, far from it actually. Whereas in Sunni Islam we talk about tasawwuf or Sufism, in Shi'ism the preferred term or tradition came to be something that is called irfan, which is sometimes translated as something like Gnostic knowledge or Gnosticism. But what is meant is a kind of mystical wisdom of philosophy distinct from a simply rationalistic falsafa tradition of people like Ibn Sina or Ibn Rushd. What this means in practice is that many ideas within Sufism, primarily its metaphysical speculations and some psychological theories, were very much adapted by Shi'i thinkers as essential to a comprehensive understanding of Islamic doctrine and spirituality, but instead they went under the name Irfan rather than Sufism, which was often looked down upon, especially in the Safavid era. What wasn't adopted usually were the practical aspects of Sufism. That is what Sufism was, according to the critical Shi'i thinkers, various ecstatic practices that were considered questionable according to the law. But that didn't mean that the philosophical ideas of the Sufis and their view of reality was incorrect. So this latter theoretical part was often accepted and called Erfan, while many of the practical aspects, in other words Sufism, was rejected. These are oversimplifications, of course, but you get the general idea. This hostile attitude of the Safavids and their scholars against Sufism, per se, is especially fascinating given the fact that the Safavid dynasty actually originated as a Sufi order. In the words of Alexander Knish, quote, As a result, in the Iranian Shi'i milieu, the nobler metaphysical, cosmological, and gnosiological aspects of Sufism were excluded from this notion and renamed as wisdom, hikmah, transcendental philosophy, hikmat al-mut'aliyah, or divine gnosis, irfan. Simultaneously, the notion of Sufism, tasawwuf per se, was demoted to the antisocial behavior and crude superstition of the antinomian ignoramuses. The doctrines of the great Sufi master Ibn Arabi, himself a staunch Sunni, became widely adopted into the later Shi'i mysticism or Irfan. The relatively early figure of Haidar Amuli is very important in this regard, as he became heavily influenced by the school of Ibn Arabi in particular, and also came to adapt those ideas into a more clearly Shi'i framework, including the doctrine of the Imams, etc. But it was especially with the writings of the already mentioned Mullah Sadra that this really took off. Mullah Sadra combined the peripatetic teachings of Ibn Sina, the illuminationist thought of Suravardi, and the mystical doctrines of Ibn Arabi to create a philosophy that he called Al-Hikmat Al-Muta'aliyah, the transcendent wisdom or transcendent philosophy. The thought of Mullah Sadra and the tradition of Irfan became paradigmatic in Shi'ism ever since. He is often considered the most influential philosopher in Islamic history after Ibn Sina, at least in the Eastern and Shi'i world. All the great Shi'i scholars to this day study Mullah Sadra and his mystical philosophy as an essential part of their training. To some, it may be surprising to learn that some of the great ayatollahs in Iran and elsewhere were hugely influenced by mysticism and the thought of Mullah Sadra. Even Ayatollah Khomeini was an expert on Mullah Sadra and on the tradition of Irfan in general. 
Indeed, in 1989, Khomeini actually sent a letter to the then Soviet leader Gorbachev and basically invited him to convert to Islam as a better ideology than the communism of the Soviets at the time. And in the process, he actually sent Gorbachev a copy of Ibn Arabi's Fusus al-Hikam, or the Ringstones of Wisdom, as a book that to him basically represented the religion of Islam in the best way and would sort of make Gorbachev want to convert. In other words, the world is complicated and things like mysticism is often hugely oversimplified and colored by modern new age thinking, but the reality of the situation is a lot more complicated than that. Irfan has been a central part of Shi intellectual thought until today, and we can thus see that while its relationship with Sufism is complicated, there has always been an exchange of ideas between different schools of Islam. But what also becomes clear is that the Safavid era is really a watershed moment in the history of Imami Shiism generally. Being given political power resulted in some very significant developments in all kinds of fields of knowledge, jurisprudence, philosophy, quote-unquote mysticism, and even to some degree certain art forms like music. This era and the following centuries of Qajar rule also saw the increasing role of the jurists as leaders of the community as well as the representatives of the hidden imam. A few years into Safavid rule, the actual shahs or kings of the empire lost a large amount of their power and the fuqaha, the jurists, essentially came to have the largest amount of power. As we saw in the Shi'i tradition of law, especially in the dominant Usuli school, there is a major emphasis on ijtihad, personal interpretation, and the jurist who is trained enough that he had the authority to practice ijtihad is known as a mujtahid. The mujtahids and jurists generally continued to hold very significant power in Iran and in Persia and in the Shi'i world. Some would argue that their power increased more and more over time, a development that basically culminated in the doctrine of the Walayat al-Faqih, the guardianship of the jurists, which was formulated by Ayatollah Khomeini in the 20th century. The title Ayatollah, which literally means sign of God, came to be used primarily in the 20th century to denote the highest authorities in Shi'i Islam and includes people like Khomeini as well as the very popular Sistani today. And the doctrine of the guardianship of the jurist essentially states that in the absence of the hidden imam, the jurist has the authority to lead the community absolutely in religious matters. This wasn't a new idea in Shiism per se, but what Khomeini did was to extend that authority to political rule as well. In other words, the jurist or the highest jurist now had the right and indeed should be the highest authority over the state as well, even the shah, king or president of the country. And it is on this basis that the Islamic Republic of Iran was founded. Now important to remember is that not all Shi'is follow this idea and support Wilayat al-Faqih in the absolute sense as formulated by Khomeini. So even today, as has always been the case, Shi'ism remains complex and diverse and there are many voices and opinions around questions such as these. But now I hope you have somewhat of a better understanding of Twelver Shi'ism, its history and its major doctrines and intellectual developments. Um, in terms of law, it doesn't differ much at all from Sunni Islam in most ways except in a few details. But in other ways, in terms of theology, its esoteric doctrines and other such things, they can differ very drastically. Imamis have, at least since the 11th century, put a major emphasis on aql, on reason and intellect in its methodologies uh, in terms of law as well as theology. 
At the same time, the Shi'is, especially in the early period and in ideas surrounding the Imams, appear to have always emphasized very esoteric ideas, from the mystical and fantastical stories about the Imams themselves, their secret knowledge and powers, to the later development of strong currents of Erfan or mystical philosophies, Twelver Shi'ism is a dynamic tradition. In the near future, we will also be going in-depth into that second-largest Shi'i community, the Ismailis. So stay tuned for that, uh, and I'll see you next time. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.